I won't tell you what Piper said to him a week ago, okay? <laughs> Let's get to the message. Two weeks ago, I shared with you a message titled, I titled it, We Believe Part One. After finishing First John and that study, I just felt um, that it was time that once again, I do what I do every, I don't know, five or six years. I spend a little time talking about what our core values are uh, here at Faith Family, the things that are, I'm passionate about building, what we build in our foundation, our purpose, our calling. And uh, last Sunday, in my absence, Tony shared a message based upon uh, Paul's words in first, uh, Romans chapter one, there is therefore now no condemnation. And they took you through three different scenes in, in the scripture. Uh, and I don't know, well, I heard him talk about the fact that he planned on sharing a different message and uh, he shared in the first service. But on Saturday night, as he was going through his files and his computer, he came across an untitled file, opened up that untitled file, and it grabbed hold of his heart for last Sunday morning. Uh, and he didn't plan in any way, shape, or form, but it, it kind of dovetails into what we talked about two weeks ago and what I'm going to talk about again this morning as we're talking about our core values. But I want to begin with a modern-day parable. And uh, once upon a time, in a place not far away, there was a little desert bakery shop owned and operated by a woman named Susan. She employed a, a baker by the name of Carl, an assistant by the name of Stephanie. On this particular morning, Susan is at work early and involved in a whirlwind of activity. It's obvious that there's something important on this particular day. When, when Stephanie comes in at a pointed hour, she comments on Susan's energy and seeming anxiety over something. What's going on? Is the food critic from the New York Times coming today? Susan says, no, it's my mother. It's her birthday, and she's coming in today. You have a mother? I mean, I've never heard you speak about a mother. Carl jumps into the conversation with a quip. No, she just sprang from her father's head like the goddess in Greek mythology. Stephanie says, oh, Susan, I forgot to ask you earlier. I'm sorry, but I have a friend who's coming into town today, and it's her birthday. And I told her I would take her out to a late lunch after the, the ru rush hour here at lunch. Will that be all right? I don't know. My mother's never been here. I do want everything to be perfect. And I've got to get her a card and something for a gift. Stephanie said, hey, I've got some cards. I didn't know which one would be just right for my friend. You could have one of these. That ought to be worth an hour off. Well, that depends on what it says. And does your mother like flowers? I bought two different plants for my friend Daisy. I haven't decided which flower she'll like the best. Does your mom like flowers? Yes, my mom likes flowers. She has a garden, I think. You think? Haven't you been to your mother's house? Yes, once. Once? You've only been to your mother's house once? Well, she's only lived there a couple of years. She's lived there a couple of years, and you've only been there once? No wonder I've never heard about your mother. Don't you see your mother? Yes, I see my mother two or three times a year. We have this understanding. We see each other on special occasions. You know, Christmas and Thanksgiving and birthdays and Mother's Days. 
And sometimes to save time, we combine the birthdays. Carl says, you see your mom two or three times a year, and you combine birthdays to save time? By this time, Stephanie and Carl have looks of disbelief on their face. Susan says, hey, it isn't as bad as it sounds. We have this understanding. There's just some certain times in our life that we share and some that we don't share. You know what I mean, don't you? Stephanie says, not really. My mom lives thousands of miles away, and I would love to be able to see her all the time. Your mom lives close by. No, I don't understand. Quit looking at me like that. Just go ahead with your plan. Stephanie said, that's it? What's it? Daisy, my friend Daisy, has grown children. I'll bet she could help you. I don't need any help. We're just fine. You don't want a relationship with your mother? We have a relationship. No, you don't. You have an understanding, remember? Daisy's so warm and kind and witty. She's wonderful. When I'm with her, she is such a great listener. She has so much wisdom. It's like my mother's there. You know what I mean? I thought we already established the fact I don't, Stephanie. I'm happy for you. I'm glad that relationship works. But not everybody has to be like that. Well, you could be if you and your mother were in the same room more than two or three times a year. No, no, no. We have this relationship that is carefully evolved. We know when we meet, where we meet, what we do when we meet. It's all predictable. Don't you guys want to do anything fun? Daisy and I are in a garden club together. That's how I know she likes flowers. Carl, the ever-observant male in this conversation, wait a minute. You're in a garden club with a woman named Daisy? How ironic. Well, actually, that's her nickname because daisies are her favorite flower. Her real name is Edith. Susan now says, now that is ironic. That's my mother's name. No kidding. That must be another sign that you two should meet. I'll make sure she comes inside when she gets here. I want you to meet her. Okay, just make sure everything is clean. Four hours later, the woman comes into the shop. Stephanie looks up from her task. Daisy, it's so good to see you. Happy birthday. And she gives her a big hug. I'll be ready in a minute. But first, there's someone I want you to meet. Wait right here. Stephanie goes in the back room and brings out Susan. Here she is. And Daisy says, hello, Susan. Susan says, happy birthday, Mom. Stephanie, I would like you to meet my mother, Edith. Edith says to Susan, I'm sorry to interrupt your day like this. I know this how it isn't, is not how it normally works between us. That's okay, Mom. Happy birthday. Here's a card for you. I didn't expect a card. It was picked out especially for you. Stephanie says, Susan, why don't you join us for lunch and you can get to know Daisy. That brings up a whispering conversation between Susan and Stephanie. Susan said, that's not the way our relationship works, and I don't think I want to change it. You two go and have fun. All right for now, but things are going to change. And the parable today ends with Daisy and Stephanie going to lunch, Susan going back to work. 
Let me ask you this, in your lifetime, has there ever been a time when there was someone you wanted to go to the next level with in terms of relationship with them? Maybe in high school or college you saw that person of the opposite gender and you had this real attraction and you would have loved to have gone out with them, but it seemed like they didn't know you existed. Or worse yet, they knew you existed and kept their distance from you anyway. Maybe it's your children. They've grown up. Or maybe you are separated from their other parent and the kids live without spouse. Maybe you've made some mistakes in the past. Whatever the reason, you're in a position where you would like to have more than a Christmas and a birthday relationship. You want to connect. You want to be friends with them. But they do not want to cooperate. They don't want to let you in and allow that relationship to go where you would love for it to go. Maybe it's the other way around. You're the child who would love to connect with a parent. Maybe you were kids, your parents split up and the relationship was fractured, but today you would love to, for that to be restored. You would love to really know the father or the mother who became absent. Maybe like Susan or Parable, your relationship with your parents just throws you off balance. Rather than being close and warm, it's distant and awkward. Everyone seems uncomfortable. You see other families where there appears to be warmth and closeness. You want your relationship to get nothing works. Maybe it's your marriage. It isn't, isn't as intimate as it was one time, and I don't mean sexually. There was a time when your, you and your spouse were, how they say it, BFF? You enjoyed hanging out, doing things together, listening to the same music, enjoying the same food, a closeness. But over time, someone's checked out. Oh, they're kind and polite. They're not mistreating you. But there's a distance that can't be closed. Everyone does the rules. Meals are cooked. The bills are paid. The garbage gets taken out. Somebody mows the lawn. But yet you're frustrated. At times you want to give up making that relationship work. Have you ever been in a relationship where you wanted to go deeper than it actually does? It can be so frustrating because there's nothing you can do to force somebody else to become vulnerable and transparent with you. Now, I know that some of you are in hopes that in the next 20 minutes I'm going to solve that problem for you as much as I would like to. I want to talk to you about a relationship that if you take care of it first, that's the first step in solving these other relationships. I want to talk to you about moving something from our cranium to the center of that place where we make decisions, where we call our heart. I want to talk about the difference between head knowledge and a passion to know and a passion to love. What I want to share with you today is this. God has a deep desire to be in intimate relationship with you. God has a deep desire to be in intimate relationship. 
God created us for closeness with him. God created Adam and Eve and gave to them to dominion everything that he created to rule with him, to partner with him. That's God's plan for all of us as human beings is to do life with him. All too many have a distant relationship with God. Oh, there's a sense of respect. There's this sense of understanding from their point of view. They understand what the minimum requirements are to get to heaven. The minimum requirements to call myself a Christian, a child of God. Yes, I believe in God. I know that Jesus died for my sin. And as true as those facts are, from the beginning of the Bible to the end, more and more I see God as one who longs for a relationship with his people that's marked by intimacy, closeness. I think it was Bette Midler that made the song famous. I don't think she wrote it. I don't know. But God is watching from a distance. And while there's some truth to that, that's not God's desire for him to be off in the distance. His desire, Jesus said, I want to come and abide in you. Father and I want to make our home in you. That's God's plan. In Luke 15, Jesus came to reveal the Father, and he tells three stories in that chapter. In Luke 15, he, he first he tells about God or the kingdom of heaven is like a shepherd who had a hundred sheep. And the evening comes and he brings the sheep into the fold and he counts them in 98, 99, and where's 100? It's not there. So he hires a sheep sitter. And he goes and looks to find that lost sheep. And you remember what happened in that story that Jesus told when he found the lost sheep? He called in the friends and the family and the, and the neighbors, let's party. My sheep was lost and I found it. Let's party. The second story, a woman had 10 coins. Now in that culture, it was obvious that they understood what those 10 coins were about, maybe her dowry or whatever, but she lost one of them. And she sweeps her house until she finds that 10th coin. And then what's she do? She invites in the neighbors and they have a a party because that which was lost is found. And in case you can't get it, Jesus says, now this is my, you know, in between the lines. I have a third story, he says. There was a father who had two sons. And the younger son became rebellious. He said, Father, give me my inheritance. I'm out of here. And he went to a far country and he spent it all. He ends up feeding the pigs in the field, and he's so hungry he would eat the pods that they're eating. When he comes to his senses and says, in my father's house, his servants have food. They have a roof over their head to sleep at night. I'll go home and be a servant. We often call it the story of the prodigal son, but it's more about the father. It's more about the father. The son rejected dad. He rejected home. He rejected the family. But when he comes to his senses and he's going home, I love the way Jesus told the story. While he was yet 
a long way off, the father saw him and ran to meet him. The son says, Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. He says, shut up. Bring a robe. Bring a ring. Give him new shoes. My son who was lost is found. My son who is dead is alive. And you know what they did then? They barbecued the lost sheep. Actually, they bought the fatted calf. And they had a party. That's the father's heart. He wants a deep relationship, an intimate relationship with you and me. Hmm. It started back in the garden. In the cool of the evening, when God would come and walk and talk with them, Adam, where are you? Adam, why are you hiding? And that intimacy was broken. And God has done everything he can to restore the intimacy that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden, where they reigned in dominion with God over everything that God had created. God makes it clear that a relationship with him goes beyond Christmas and Easter, Mother's Day and Father's Day and your birthday. He wants more than just religious performance even once a week in a gathering we call church service. God wants more than a relationship that is distant, that is casual. God wants an intimate relationship with you and me. Jesus teaches how to pray. Jesus said, pray in this manner. I can't hear you. Our Father. He didn't say, pray, O most holy God, who reigns in the heavens above, who created all things. Even that's, that's who he is. But he says, our Father, our Father. And while all of us, or many of us, say, yeah, Bob, I know all of that. Yet we have a tendency to live in a casual relationship with him. Oh, we have this respect for him. And that's good, the fear of the Lord, the awe of the Lord is beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge. But there is a level of living in the presence of God that goes beyond it comes to that place of intimacy with God. Now I want to look at a passage of Scripture from Revelations chapter 3. We, um, the chapters 2 and 3, Jesus writing, speaking to the seven churches in Asia Minor, or seven of the churches. In each one of those, he has something to say to Christians about their relationship to God, their relationship to Jesus. Now I want to look again at the letter written to the church at Laodicea. And I know that I talked about some of this a few weeks ago and I was wrapping up a message and it wasn't in my notes that day and I just felt inspired to share it. And so I'll just hit the high points again this morning as we hit this passage. But I just wanted to unpack this passage just a little bit. 
So in Revelation 3.14, Jesus introduces himself as the great and almighty God and the amen and all of that. And then he said this, I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. The subtext, you're nice people, you're doing nice things in a respectful way. But there's something far deeper that could be happening in our relationship. There can be a level of relationship that really impacts your lives and your culture. A level of relationship that impacts your lives and the people around you, your culture that you live in. Yesterday, um, I made a choice to attend a funeral service in Van Nuys, California via the internet, YouTube. I watched the live stream. I had to come over for a birthday party for Dodie for a few minutes, and I went back and paused it, and it was a three-hour service for Dr. Jack Hayford, um, a man that I've sat at the table with and had dinner with, um, but the pastor of Church on the Way, president of the uh, Four Square for one term, uh, founded King Seminary, Bible College, um, three hours. There was num a number of very notable people who spoke about Jack Hayford and their experience with him. All of them spoke about their friendship with him, but every one of them spoke about his love for Jesus, his love for Jesus. Everything was about Jesus. And the reason I bring that up at this point is I said that there's a relationship that will impact your life and the culture. I would venture to say there was probably millions of people who watched that service yesterday because Jack Hayford loved Jesus to the point that you knew that he loved Jesus. And their lives were transformed as they listened to him preach and teach and watched him live a life of loving Jesus. I know your deeds. You're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. And then the next one is disconcerting. So because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I shared with you a couple of weeks ago, whenever it was, I forget, that I've heard preachers preach that God wants you to be either on fire for him or totally rebelling against him. I don't believe that. It didn't make any sense to me. It never did make any sense to me. When I say be hot or cold. Laodicea. It's an interesting city. If you study just a little bit of the history about it, they were very famous for the banking industry. They had sophisticated banking industry and people who made money, had money. They were famous for a medical school that created a, an eye salve that was a salvation for the, the eyesight for many people living in that day. And, and they had a textile business. You wanted fine clothes? That was a place to go, Laodicea. But it was a city that lacked water. They had to pipe in their water from several miles. I think it was Colossae that they brought it through an aqueduct system. 
And the cold spring in Colossae, by the time it flowed down the aqueduct, the water was lukewarm. In the opposite direction was the city of Heropolis. Heropolis was famous for hot springs where people would go and sit in those hot springs and, and soak and bring in relief from pain and sickness in their bodies. So the cold and the hot had to do with the refreshing qualities, the restorative qualities of the water that Laodicea did not have. Lukewarm drinking water, not real refreshing. How many of you like lukewarm coffee? Spit it out of your mouth. Lukewarm mineral baths. You like sitting in a lukewarm bath? That's about the time to get out. Jesus says the relationship that we have, he's talking to this church, it lacks life, it lacks vitality. Verse 17 says, you say, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Inside their church, they were saying, life's good. We've got stuff. We've got a home. We've got money in the bank. We've got fine wool clothes to wear. It's a good life. And they think because everything is going good that they're doing what they should be doing. You think because they're living under a certain level of blessing that they're walking in the center of God's plan and His purpose. These people are self-satisfied and secure with their accumulation of money and stuff. Does that sound like any nation that you know about today? I have needed of nothing. But Jesus said, in the last next part of that verse says this, but you do not realize you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I don't know what I did with the second song. I must have clipped it to the first song. We were supposed to sing, Open the Eyes of My Heart. I just kept going. Open the eyes of my heart. These people needed their eyes open. And every once in a while, we need to pray, Lord, open the eyes of my heart that I might see you. That I might see you. You're wretched and poor, blind and naked. Things are not what they seem to be. It's not as good as you think it. So Jesus gives them counsel. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich, white clothes to wear, so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put in your eyes so that you can see fire. Seems to me that there's several scriptures where the apostles talk about the fact rejoice when fiery trials come your way because God is going to use it to refine you and when you come through you'll be like gold. And so maybe Jesus is saying you better brace yourself. There's some 
trials coming your way, but they come to do something for you. They come to give you real riches. They come to give you clothes that have been washed in the blood of the Lamb so that you hide your shameful nakedness and your eyes will be open so you can see. He calls them, verse 19, do not miss this. Because it sounds like he's really angry with them. You're not hot or cold, you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out. But he reminds them, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Be earnest and repent. To those whom I love, he's speaking these words to them because he loves them and wants that relationship to be intimate, to be close. Don't take this relationship casually, he's saying. Be earnest about it. Be earnest. Repent. I came across some Apostle Peter as I was looking at this passage of Scripture, looking back at 1 Peter chapter 1, or 2 Peter chapter 1, excuse me, verse 5 where he writes this, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith, goodness, and to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Be earnest about your relationship. Verse 8 says this, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ineffective, unproductive. That was what John was saying to the church at Laodicea. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're ineffective, you're not productive because you're not pursuing this relationship with me. Verse 9, but if anyone does not have them, he's nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he's been cleansed from his past sins. That's why if you hang out here for months, you're going to hear me talk about the cross over and over and over. You're going to hear me say words about we are saved by grace and grace alone. Lest we become complacent and proud of who we are and what we are, it all goes back to the fact that Jesus Christ loved me, died for me, and I am totally dependent upon him. Do not forget, do not forget where you come from. Verse 20. Here I am. Here I am. Subtext, you're Christians, at least you call yourself, you have some good things going, some bad things, but here I am. I know you're busy being religious, but here I am. And this imagery is so vivid, and I wanted to help make it even more vivid. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Here I am. He's standing 
outside the church in this imagery. The people on the other side of the door talk about him. They pray about him. They say they're praying to him. But he's outside. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. Does Jesus need to have somebody open the door for him? He could appear on the other side. He did on Easter Sunday night. He could breathe on that door and it would just be gone. He's God. He can go any way he wants, anytime he wants. But he said, I stand at the door and knock. And this is his church. Can he just go in and have his way with them? No, he's going to stand at the door and knock. There is a concept that runs through the Bible. It's a concept that says Christ, sets Christianity apart from every other religion. God who says, I want you to know me as Father. This God who has the power and the ability to create everything that we see, there's something he cannot do. It's as if God is saying this, I can make you obey me. I can make you fear me. But I cannot make you love me. Even though he commands us to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, he gives us a free will to make that choice. I cannot make you love me. He can threaten you. He can take your children away. He can take your money, your finances. He can take away your health. He says, I can take things, I can give things, but I cannot make you love me. Throughout the Bible, I see God searching Searching for people. Not in the sense that he doesn't know where they're at. He knows where you're at. But in the sense that he's searching for people that he wants to have a relationship with. And that he has given everything possible to make it happen. He's searching for that kind of relationship we had with Adam and Eve. Walked in the cool of the evening and talk with them. In a word, and I know it's re somewhat repetitive, but God is searching for intimacy with his people. He wants deep relationship. He wants intimacy with people. And because we cannot force, he cannot force us to let, we have this picture of Jesus standing on the outside of the church. A group of religious people Here I am, knocking. It's not that I want in where you talk about me with your cranium. I want to come in and be in relationship with you that is built around mutual love. Unfortunately, many Christians and all the other religions of the world 
have opted for a second choice. Often, instead of a relationship with God that is characterized by love, we have opted for religion. We have opted for religion. Religion allows us to respect God. It allows us to, to have a certain list of rules and regulations that we can do. We can have a little formula that defines our relationship with God. Believe in God, go to church, read your Bible, say your prayers before you eat, before you go to sleep, and be sure to pray for forgiveness. So that's what we do. We perform a little ritual on an ongoing basis, including asking God to forgive us our sin today. And then we go again and do them again tomorrow thinking God forgave them and forgot them, so he won't remember that he forgave me yesterday, and I'll come and ask for forgiveness again today. So I think that sometimes we love to have religious exercises to come up with because it makes it feel like I'm doing something to earn that forgiveness. That also means I can pretty much do this God thing with a set, certain amount of time and set aside at my convenience. We like to be religious. And by the way, it makes no difference what denomination you may have come from or belong to. And I know charismatics like to, to diss on Lutherans and Catholics for all the liturgy and formality and all of that. But charismatics have their own liturgy and formality and all of that. And we all do. Every group does. But here's one of the problems with religious people. Sooner or later, religion becomes very self-centered. Religion becomes very self-centered. It comes to the place where I'm trying to get God to do my thing. With religious people, it ends up being all about me. Tell me the right words to say so that God will, will bless all my, and take away all my financial worries. Uh, what prayer do I pray so I'll be able to afford a bigger house, a larger garage, and more cars to put in it? What prayer do I say to make me more powerful on the job and more successful in the work market, marketplace? With religious people, it all comes to down, down to now. It's not about heaven and eternity. The issue is not about hell and the eternal damnation of Satan and everyone that he can deceive. It's all about me, my comfort, my blessing, my desires. It's about keeping me healthy, keeping my kids healthy, about living a long and peaceful life in prosperity. So how do I give God just enough to maintain this blessing in my life? How do I maintain respect without getting too close? It's a religion. It's a formula. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but religious people become judgmental. Religious people become judgmental. They decide what things God likes and what God things God does not like, and if they see somebody doing something that they think God does not like, they write them off, sometimes brutally. You can't be in right relationship if you're doing that. I'll bet there's people here today that you were raised in church, but when you gave, became a teenager, you left it. Number one reason you left it is because you had been trying to be religious, but being religious left you empty, frustrated. So I'm just going to go do all the things they tell me I can't do here to see what life is all about. And you did that for a period of time, and then you discovered 
that left you empty too. Do I go back and try religion again? No, you go back and you try Jesus. You try Jesus. People come back because you had a load of guilt. Remember Tony addressed that last week. We all live with guilt. But there's no condemnation to them who are religious. No, there's no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. If you're religious long enough, you'll become judgmental. You'll criticize people, and you will dislike people. There are people today who their greatest pain in life has to do with church people. Religious people who bumped you out in their judgmental spirit. They laid a of, load of condemnation on you. They tried to rule you, manipulate you with their sets of rules and laws. Or worse yet, they said one thing in the gathering, and then the other six days of the week, they lived a whole different life. I remember a man 50 years ago telling me, my Sunday life, my church life, that's one life. Work life's a whole different life. The two don't mix. I'm thinking, mm, 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 yeah. Hopefully Jesus saves you before you go to see him. Religion is not about love. Religion is about harnessing the power of God for me. It's about trying to get God to do something for me. It ultimately becomes so, very self-centered. Listen, on the night before Jesus was crucified, he's gathered in the upper room with the, with the 12 and then the 11, and then they make their way through the city to the Garden of Gethsemane for a time of prayer. Some point in that night, in John 16, he said this, All this I've told you so that you will not go astray. They will put you out of the synagogue. In fact, a time is coming when anyone who kills you will think he's offering a service to God. He's saying the religious people are going to kick you out of their club and they're going to kill you thinking they're doing a great thing for God because you're following Jesus Christ. So zealous for religion, but not for God. So zealous for religion, they kill Christians and think God's going to give you an attaboy. Way to go. Killed one Christian today. Check mark. Brownie points in heaven. That's where religion goes. When we make God in our own image, that's what happens. You say, no way. Oh, really? Remember 9-11? There were people who hijacked those planes and literally gave their life thinking that their God, Allah, was going to say, I'll give you paradise because you killed all these innocent people because they were infidels. They did not worship me. It's going on around the globe this very hour. Muslims, Hindus, killing Christians, thinking they are doing it in the name of their God. How can they do that? Verse 3, Jesus gave the answer. They will do such things because they have not known the Father or me. They have not known the Father 
for me. He didn't say they don't believe in the Father. They have not known him. You can have all kinds of belief, all kinds of religious forms. You can stand up, kneel down, sing fast, sing slow, give offerings, eat the communion. You can do all that, but if you don't know me, it's merely religion. You can have a Bible, two or three of them, on the coffee table, carry it to church on Sunday. But if you don't live it, You don't know the Father. If you don't know the Father, that means you're strangers. When we are strangers from God, we are strangers to His ways. We are strangers to His ways. If I don't know the Father, that means someday you're going to get really upset with God when something happens in your life that you don't think should have happened. But you know what? His ways are not our ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth are His ways above our ways. If you don't know the Father, you come to the conclusion, God doesn't love me. God doesn't care. Where were you, God? When we're strangers from God, we are strangers to His will, and we end up making really bad decisions. Anybody been there, done that? Every one of us. When we're strangers to God, we're strangers to His will, and we end up making really bad decisions. And when we're in that position, well, when we're strangers to God, you're stranger to His love. We're stranger to His love. And this is how we perceive it. We have a wrong view. This is wrong. Our wrong view is God wants me to perform my way into his graces. God must be pretty impressed. I sat all through the hour sermon that Pastor Bob gave on February the 19th. I showed up for Christmas and Easter three years in a row. When you are a stranger to his love, you think it's about what you've done, what you can do. When you're a stranger to love, you think God is comparing us to each other. And if you compare in the upper percentile, you've made it in, just do enough to not be in the lower percentile. Jesus said religious people will go to extreme measures because they don't know me. They don't know the Father. So we're talking about our core values. And one of our values is the presence of God. We don't want him on the outside knocking. Let me in. We want to acknowledge his presence and living relationship with him, a vital relationship with him. I don't want this to be a place where we propagate religion. I want to be far more than a religious organization. 
I want us to be a people who know the Father, who know Jesus, that we become intimate with the Father. And our times of worship and study are all about getting to know Jesus and loving Jesus and allowing Jesus to love us. Knowing God, not just knowing about him, but really knowing God. You see, it's not about religion. It's all about relationship. It's all about relationship to God in its purest form. Religion will sap the life out of you. Religion will make you a judgmental person. Religion will alienate you from people and finally make you a stranger from God. We're not going to go there. Three things that will bring intimacy in any of your relationships. We're talking about a relationship with Jesus, but remember I started talking about relationships are all fractured. It starts healing with these three things. Number one, give them time. Give them time. Unrushed, unstructured time to just hang together. For most of us, life kind of goes in cycles. There's those moments when we really get, and we spend time with Jesus and we love to spend time with Jesus and then life gets busy and we got things to take care of and, 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 and we forget to maintain. We have those times when we pray together, when we worship together. But we also have those times when I'm alone with the Lord and I, and I pray and, and I worship Him and I listen to Him time when I come and I realize I'm in the presence of Jesus. There's nothing like knowing that I'm in the presence of Jesus. Lay aside the cares of life for a few moments and focus on I can be in His presence. It's like a breath of fresh air coming from deep within. You know you're connected with the Father. A sense of peace that comes over you. Oftentimes, in, I'm praying in prayer time, playing the piano. One of the songs I love to sing to the Lord is times of refreshing. Here in your presence, no greater blessing than being with you. My soul is restored and my mind is renewed. There's no greater joy, Lord. No greater joy, Lord, than being with you being with you. You can get busy doing good things. You can get too busy in ministry and forget to be connected with Jesus. Intimacy takes personal and private time. Intimacy takes personal and private time. My wife and I cannot be intimate friends and lovers if we have no time together. That's why we have Friday night date night. That's why we take vacations most of the time together. <laughs> you cannot be intimate with the Father 
without time alone with him. Number two, transparency. Transparency. When I spend time with someone I want to be intimate with, close with, I have to go beyond the cliche talk. How are you today? It's not raining at the moment. What's it going to do in an hour? There has to be conversation that goes below the surface that has to become real. So when you're talking to God in prayer time throughout the day, tell it like it is. Be honest. Be forthright. That's what I love about David's Psalms. I mean, he tells it like it is. Honest and forthright. God, I'm a little frustrated right now. And God's going, frustrated? Nothing. You're flat out angry. <laughs> when your heart's full of jealousy, tell him. Lord, I need to have this issue. Guys, why not try being real when your heart's full of lust and saying, God, my heart's full of lust. Well, I don't want to offend God. I don't want to make you mad at me. Let me give you a little secret. If you're having trouble with being transparent with God, God already knows. God has never said, really? You're kidding me. I didn't have any idea. I wish you had never told me that. Now you're in real trouble. See, when there's intimacy, there's transparency between people. You get it all, the good, bad, and you're listening. There's freedom to be totally honest. And when you're in a relationship where you accept the good and bad in me and I accept the good and bad in you, we have a relationship that is enviable because we're learning to know each other. Intimacy. If you're going to be intimate with God, it requires time, requires transparency. That means some of your prayers might be a little R-rated and go beyond being polite as you're intimate with God. Now, I want you to think about this. God became flesh to die on the cross so that he might have intimacy with us. I said that slow because I did not want that to go over the top. God became flesh and died a human death in order that we might call him Father and be the children of God living in his forever family in intimacy. Abba, Father. Abba, Father. How dare we keep him at arm's length? Point number three. Here's the rub. Submission. Submission. The most important statement for you to take away from today's lesson is this, the word submission. Submission is the most powerful relational dynamic in the world. Submission. Mutual submission is at the core of every strong relationship. Mutual submission. Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul said, Submit yourselves, therefore, one to another. Now, guys, like a little couple of verses later, he said, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. But that's prefaced by 
submit yourselves to one another. Wives, submit yourselves, your husband, as unto the Lord. And husbands, if you think you got a free pass to be a domineering Read the next verse. Love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Mutual submission. Mutual submission. You know what scares you today about your submission to God? You know why you're afraid? To say, God, here, here I am, all of me. All I have, all I am, I surrender to you, I give it to you. We think we can't trust him. So write this down. God has already made the first move. God has already made the first move. I spoke of it a moment ago. He already made the first move of mutual submission. He chose to send his son Jesus to the planet as a human being through the womb of a woman. By the miracle of the Holy Spirit, lived a perfect life in obedience, died on the cross for your sins. Before you ever prayed your first prayer, before you ever did your first sin, God sent his son to remove anything that would hinder intimacy between you and the Father. God was saying, I'm going to put you before me. I'm going to put your need foremost in my plan for what the world is all about. I'm going to do what's best for you, not what's easiest for me. Now don't ever forget Jesus praying in the garden. If you think the plan of salvation was easy for God, don't ever forget as he's praying, Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. And he's bleeding from his brow from the intensity of that moment. Don't ever forget him crying out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God said, I'm going to be more concerned about your sin and your dysfunction. I'm being more concerned about your life and your eternity than I am about our comfort here in heaven. I long so much to be close to you. I love the theology of the course we sang in the 80s. Oh, how he loves you and me. Oh, how he loves you and me. He gave his life. What more could he give? Oh, how he loves you. Oh, how he loves me. Oh, how he loves you and me. God said, I've already submitted my all for your best. And it's my invitation for you to do the same. And when you do that, when you give up performance for the sake of religion and start living a life of submitting to my best interest, you're going to move into the realm of relationship with me that is so liberating, so invigorating, a relationship that takes you way beyond religion and into the joy of knowing me. What are we afraid of? 
There's something in this belief. If I totally submit myself to God, he's going to make me a fanatic. He's going to embarrass me. He's going to radically change my world and I'll be ridiculed by people. God's not out to embarrass you. He's not out to destroy your life or take away all the fun in your life. God wants you to live in close, intimate relationship with him. He wants you to love him like he loves you with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He wants relationship, close and special relationship. And he stands at the door and knocks. You know what I desire from my kids? A relationship of love, real, sincere love. Now, when they were growing up, there was times that they would come and they would try to butter me up. Dad, I love you. And I would say, I'm broke, I have no money, but I do love you too. <laughs> now, I realized there was times that they were able to, with their batting eyes and all of that, manipulate me, and they got something they wanted. Five girls and one guy, you know. And so... Uh, But those moments aren't the most special moments. The special moments are when, now that they're adults, and they call me and say, Dad, I need to talk to you, something. Because at that moment, it shows that we have a relationship of love. A relationship built on authentic love for each other. I wonder how often we try to play God, manipulate him to do what we want him to do. If I can see through my kids, do you think God can see through us? So why doesn't Jesus come huffing and puffing to blow your house down so he can come on in? He's done everything he can to provide for intimacy, but he cannot, will not force it. He has to come, your invitation. Here I am. Here I am. Notice that. Here I am. It's a person, not a religion. Here I am. No law to memorize. No rules to memorize. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, if anyone, in one of the other letters that he wrote, he talks about if a group does this, but in this one, it just comes down to if anyone hears my voice, there's something God can do. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and beat the living daylights out of you. Some people are afraid of that. I'll come in and take all the joy out of your life. That's not what it says. They're afraid that I'll come and take my money, come and take my stuff, take away my happiness. The only thing that God wants to take away from you is your guilt and your sin. 
your hurts and your habits, your failures that haunt you. He wants to take away everything that has messed up your life in the past and make something good out of it today. I will come in. If God wants your stuff, he's going to take it whether you open the door or not. Because it's all his. Whatever you have today, whoever you are, whatever you are, it is by the grace of God that you're even breathing today. And he can take it all back without permission. You know why he stands outside and knocks? It's not because he can't get in. He wants more than just to be in. He wants you to invite him in. I will come in and eat with him and he with me. I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now you have to understand the Middle Eastern culture the ultimate expression of friendship and hospitality was the sharing of a meal together. I will come in and eat with him. Jesus said, here I am. It's me. I'm calling your name. I want intimacy with you. I'm going to spend time with you. On rush quality time, allowing you to get to know me like I know you. My goal this morning was one thing, that somehow the Holy Spirit would speak something into your heart that would cause you, that would cause me to have a deeper longing for Jesus and the presence of Jesus than we've ever had before, to experience his glory, to experience his presence, to experience Jesus. Would you stand with me?